Hello, this is the Making Europe podcast to accompany the Making Europe book series. So, who did make Europe? This podcast may change your outlook on modern European history and how the European Union came to be. Each podcast in this series gives a new story that provides clues as to why the EU is potentially being unmade, giving insights to the challenges and debates facing the continent. Your interviewer is Geraldine Bloomfield. She will be interviewing the authors of the six editions to discover the alternative stories from the history of technology that shaped and influenced the Europe we know today. Welcome. Today I have with me the authors of Europeans Globalising from the Making Europe book series, Maria Paola Diogo, Professor of History of Technology and Engineering at the New University of Lisbon, and Dirk van Lack, Professor of Contemporary History at Leipzig University. Hello. Hello. So first, we're going to jump into the story. Technology as a Trojan Horse. In 1962, Iranian novelist Jalal L.E. Ahmad published a book called Occidentosis, A Plague from the West. In his book, he condemned the prevailing Euromania in his country. He perceived people's intoxication with the West as an illness transmitted by Western mass culture and technology, a stratagem like the Trojan horse. It remained a question that caused heated debates in non-European societies throughout the 20th century. How can European or Western achievements, especially in science and technology, be adopted without succumbing to European values and attitudes? How could the epidemic outbreak that Jalal al Iyamat feared be prevented? In a way, his critique was not new. Iranians had been angered by foreign interventions before, when in 1953, US and British agents tried to overthrow Prime Minister Muhammad Mossadegh for the sake of retaining Western control of Iranian oil resources. What was new is that his critique was published during the leadership of a Western-oriented Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who had pursued a modernization program in Persia during the so-called White Revolution of the 1960s. The Persian Shah was not very successful in reforming his country. Tensions, expressed by fundamentalist Muslims, led to the Iranian Revolution of 1979 which exiled the Shah from power and from his country. Jalal L. E. Ahmad's book presented a set of major complaints about Western attempts to infiltrate traditionalist societies. It contributed to what later was labeled the clash of civilizations. L. E. Ahmad identified five major conflicts arising from the progress of the Western materialist culture, which he referred to as a machine. 
Firstly, an increased call to urbanization that would uproot people from their villages and send them to the city with no work or shelter. Secondly, urban life would demand security that nobody could provide. Moreover, people would seek refuge in cigarettes, opiates or cinemas. Thirdly, the Western machine would put workers in local craft industries out of work. Fourthly, by pushing traditional thinking aside, individuals would become criminals, cynics or opportunists. And finally, the emancipation and education of women would draw them away from tradition and their families, throwing them into the streets. In her book Persepolis, published in 2003, Iranian author Marjana Satrapi showed how the ongoing clash of civilizations debate now permeated each family. Especially the women Al Iyamad worried about so dearly felt stuck between Muslim traditions and Western influences. Al Iyamad strongly argued that one should neither pay taxes that will be invested in arms, nor attend schools, which would serve as breeding grounds for occidentosis or the Europeanization of society. Since then, machines, Trojan horses, the means of infiltration, have become stereotypes of anti-Western attitudes all over the world. In hindsight, this criticism can be seen as an equivalent to European and American attitudes about non-European societies during the age of colonialism and beyond. One can distinguish between four major mindsets non-European elites held about the West. First, people were either attempting to ignore Europeans altogether. Second, they were adopting the European colonizer's assumption that one's own society was backwards and should be subjected to Europeanization. Third, they were embarrassing Europeans by contrasting their enlightened values with practices of violence, forced labor, racism. Or fourth, they were criticizing Europeans from a traditionalist point of view, questioning consumerism, industrialization, the nation-state, individualism, selfishness and godlessness. Interestingly enough, Almost none of these societies actually question the desirability of Western science and technology in general. The war against the West that many non-European intellectuals like L. E. Ahmad proposed was long misunderstood as a war against Western technology and comfort. But that's not what it was. Opposition was rather aimed against what technology appeared to entail. Materialism, liberalism, humanism, decadence, and moral decline. Following the revolution, Iran became a model state for religious fundamentalism and intolerance. Ongoing debates about the Western world and the clash of civilizations rage to this day.
So what inspired you to research this story? What captured your imagination about researching these stories? Yeah, actually, uh, because when you look at nowadays questions concerning uh, our societies, it's pretty much the same question that uh, Lourdes uh, on uh, our relationship with other regimes, other ways of uh, seeing uh, uh, economy, pot uh, politics, uh, social uh, issues, and so so forth. So we did uh, thought it was interesting to also use the actors of our history uh, to or for a story, if you prefer, just to go there and try to uh, confront. Uh, the way they perceive us with uh, the general rationale of our uh, writing. So it was a nice history. There was also this uh, volume, this uh, uh, graphic novel, Persepolis, mm -hmm. which was very interesting and it was very praised in the in Western society, and is something very interesting to deal, to be dealt with. So these tensions uh, attracted us. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, how can we understand the allure towards Western technology from non-Europeans? Can you describe that, why you think that comes to be? Yeah, well, we would say that it was the core of the European power that, uh, um, that uh, the Europeans... Uh, conquered the world with, uh, during the 19th century, which was a European century, definitely. And um, um, the Europeans had at their command a lot of scientific and technological means that uh, made it quite cheap and quite easy to conquer uh, unknown worlds and to, to map them and then to exploit them. So um, um, a lot of indigenous people all over the world uh, um, yeah, were quite curious about what uh, the magic would be, uh, the magic of the Europeans would be, and uh, most of them hinted at, at the capacities of, uh, of technology, uh, traveling, means of... Uh, uh, waging wars and uh, an author of medicine, mm. so um, this was this, this was something that uh, that inspired many people. So that's the more positive side and um, the view. But how the people who um, viewed technology as a Trojan horse coming into their villages, their cultures? Can you talk about that and how that was? Yeah, because uh, I mean. These powers, from right from the start, were very ambivalent uh, and ambivalently employed. Uh, they first came as an offer, and then as a as a uh, as a stick to uh, and, uh, used to um, to control people. And um, so, um, European um, expansion came came along with a lot of uh, violence and uh, a lot of waging wars and a lot of um, yeah, human suffering. 
Yeah, but actually, it's not just a problem concerning Europe and the others. Uh, actually, the same thing happened in Europe itself. So it's something that uh, comes with science, technology, and power. It's uh, this trilogy is quite powerful. Toxic. Yeah, and uh, it's as its pros and cons, of course. And so, and that's something that uh, also uh, I think that pushed us as during the book is precisely to to see those tensions and to see how different responses were deployed by different uh, others. So, and that was very, very interesting. And can you tell me about those responses? Can you give me a couple of examples? Well, there was a lot of debating about how to react to European dominance from the 19th century on. And... Uh, You can differentiate or perhaps three ideal types of reaction. Mm. The first being to totally succumbing to European power and uh, to adopt that totally and uh, to say, yes, Europeans are dominating, they are better than, than we are, they are more modern, uh, not that backward as we are. So let's uh, copy Europeans. The second was, uh, position was to, to find a kind of middle path between uh, adopting something, uh, some things, uh, mainly science and technology, and uh, retaining uh, religious beliefs and uh, uh, creating a new package, uh, like the Japanese, uh, uh, for instance, did. Um, since the Meiji Restoration time in the late 19th century. And the third position was uh, that, uh, which was inspired by people like Jamal Al-Ahmad. Mm -hmm. so, Who we hear about in the story. Uh, right. So he became an inspirator of a very fundamentalistic rejection of Europeanism or Westernism or Americanism. And this is what we experience until today. Mm -hmm. Yes, but even in these uh, three major cases, you then see completely different strategies. Because I was uh, re-reading re, 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 re the the story, and uh, in 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 a, in a moment, uh, our protagonist so, uh, um, talks about self-sufficiency. And that's exactly the same uh, term that, for instance, Gandhi uses. So even if you are using the same Gandhi terms, uses yes. That term, so even if you are using the same terms, if you are think, uh, talking about the same things, for instance, spins of the cotton or something like that, you do have different Nuances. kind of approaches, mm. and that's very interesting. Yeah. So and obviously, Gandhi was of yeah. non-violence, and it's not just non-violence, it's the way he puts it in the context. So it's a completely different uh, way and why he acts, for instance, using the railways in uh, India precisely to, to show the different classes that exist in India. So it's very interesting to, to, to see uh, how a technological device, the train, can be uh, seen as something that goes against the, the colonizer and on the other hand later on is something that like a symbol of national pride it's the same device it the same trend but it is perceived by uh, the people in completely different ways so, so the symbolism that's attached yeah, to it so in fact machines and objects are not 
uh, neutral. No. They have a very strong charge and uh, it depends on the context in which they they are living and that's very interesting. So yeah. being used for different political and social yeah. Yeah. outcomes. And sometimes, and that's uh, one of the stories also in our book that uh, I treasure the most, it's on um, a specific motorcycle, which uh, is interesting because uh, people talk about the object as something that is a little bit above uh, the nations and above any discussion on science, technology or power. And so it's a motorcycle that begins to be built in Great Britain, then goes to India, being built there under the colonized state, then completely disappears and becomes uh, an object of cult. And now it reappears, made in India, but completely uh, being exported for all over the world. And when it's uh, asked to the, 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 the people that are uh, building it and exporting it, if they did not see it as a, a symbol of colonialism, they uh, answered that no, because uh, it's a way of life. So these uh, general ideas that uh, circulate uh, outside what we are uh, investigating and researching as, as historians are also very powerful. And so we try to put them in the book as well. Mm -hmm. um, can we just um, cycle back round to talk about how... Um, the the three views that you spoke about earlier of um, Western modernity, technology, how the final one, the one that um, very much talks to um, the fundamental views um, of Western uh, technology and science, how we're seeing that played out now in today's debates um, and in international relations and the world order how do you see that playing out over the next 10, 20 years? And can we take any lessons from your book about that? Yeah, I think the major lesson is it is complex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'll not find a, a, an answer, actually. So what I think that the book is interested, interesting is that you gather a lot of information and facing the problems, you can evoke it and use it. It's not a question of having answers. It's impossible. It's way too complex. Uh, it deals with questions that are not only on the scientific and technological mm -hmm. uh, issues. The social. Yeah, there's the social, the political side. Economy, of course, is uh, one of the main uh, contexts here. We just... As historians, we did something that does not exist. We push things stories. out, out of the, of we we just ignore economy or just ignore something because we want to make a point. But this is a device of research, uh, which does not uh, mirrors reality. Reality is so complex that we feel, as historians, precisely the need to use this kind of devices uh, to to approach it. But in fact, what we can do is uh, use this information to better assess the present. Uh, but of course, uh, you do it with your own 
values attached. And so even with the same book, uh, you will have different answers uh, because you have different values, different uh, questions concerning politics, economy, social, culture, and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. So we have had these uh, discussions about the clash of civilizations yeah, Samuel from, Huntington. From, from, from the midst of the 19, uh, 1990s. But what we can say is uh, we have had these clashes uh, from at least the 19th century onwards, uh, even, even longer. It's, uh, it's a common experience. Uh, but what we also can stress is that the most uh, successful reaction always has been to uh, to create a kind of hybrid combination of different cultures mm -hmm. and uh, so this is nothing to reject or to to complain about so it's this the extremism is, on either side right so. so it's something to praise i mean that's uh, what's history about to That, 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 that cultures uh, inspire each other and uh, things are going on. So on that note of hope, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome. So that concludes this episode. To know more about the Making Europe book series, visit makingeurope.eu. To join the debate, find us on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. The Making Europe podcast was initiated by Johan Schott. Financed by the Foundation for the History of Technology, the Center for Global Challenges at Utrecht University and the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies. The podcast is realized and produced by Sun City, Geraldine Bloomfield and Susanne Lommers.